What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Planeswalkers Anonymous, the only magic podcast featuring Donovan. What more could you want from a magic podcast? Or any podcast? Why are there other podcasts? Apparently, Brian Wong. Oh. Want Brian Wong. Yeah, if, I mean, if we could get Brian Wong on this show, I could, like, be done. <laughs> I'm actually sure how that's what? a good thing. If Brian Wong comes on the show, you'll stop podcasting? I guess if that's the it's goal. I mean that I will. Brian, you just want to talk to Brian Wong, huh? It's all been a long con, or as we like to call it in the biz, a long con. I mean, if Brian Wong came on the show, that would make me happy, is all I'm trying to communicate. I guess if he wants us to stop doing the show and he comes on because I said I would be done, that would hurt. Uh, Well, you know. But for those listeners who don't already know... (laughs) Brian Wong is like a uh, Seattle Magic player who apparently is pr- fairly well known there, and it, he'll be known to uh, longtime listeners of the podcast Limited Resources because he's the the co-host on Limited Resources for about a year and a half, and uh, and he was my favorite. I thought he was great. He was like I don't know, he's good good at Limited, good host. He's funny. Yeah. He's informative. Like he he's got. Uh, outlook that I can relate to towards magic and stuff. And so, like, I just really liked him on the show. Um, and this week, we're going to do an On the Shoulders of Giants, but we're going to be talking about an episode of Limited Resources featuring Brian Wong, rather than uh, you know, an article. But before we get started on that stuff, I like to bring up Boardwalk in North Dallas. Oh, I work there. It's my store. Yeah. Donovan's there. And so, like, just like this podcast features Donovan, I, so does... It's my island. <laughs> so does Boardwalk. If you don't think that you've gotten enough of Donovan's BS on this show... <laughs> sorry, I meant uh, strategic advice and and life coaching. Oh, sure, yeah, that's BS. I thought you were talking about my humor. My humor is top-notch. Oh. But my strategic advice and life coaching, sure, that's BS. <laughs> I would never impugn your humor, Donovan. Thank you. Uh, but you... I'm quite humorous. I have two of them. <laughs> that was bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was great. I mean, they, those mean the same thing when you're talking about puns. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> those words are synonymous. But I can't recommend highly enough that all of our listeners visit Boardwalk in North Dallas to get all their magic products. You can get singles. You can get sealed product. They've got a whole bunch of uh, bundle boxes. I don't know if those are for sale, but there's a lot of them there. I mean, yeah, sell them for a dollar if anybody wants one. And, and you know, dice, apparently with the upcoming D&D set, everyone's going to need some D20s, stuff like that. You can mm-hmm. get all that stuff at Boardwalk in Dallas. And if you're not local, you can always get, well, you can get most of it at boardwalk-games.com. I think I saw a cardboard crack thing about the dice for the D&D set and about how people rolling the spin-down D20s was going to be such a problem. And I'm like... For who? Who cares? Like, like, yeah, sure, if you play in a competitive REL tournament, you would prefer the person spin roll a randomized dice. I wouldn't personally care. I wouldn't care. I w- but I think I would, I guess, slightly prefer it in that kind of environment. Yeah. 
And if you're in a professional environment, they should roll a, a randomized dice, right? I mean, I guess. But I I do not agree with the with the basic premise that a spin down dice does not produce a random number. Like I think that with the patterning on it, it would be easier for somebody to finesse a specific like high or low roll out of maybe. it, not a specific number. But if you could get it to spin, you can get it to spin all on one side and have the numbers that are you can have the high numbers all be on the top and you'll you'll get one of those right but like that's cheating through manipulation of game material sure i agree but i'm just commenting though that when this there's actual like stakes i would prefer the person roll a die that's okay. harder to cheat with i mean that that's fair i don't actually disagree with that point i'm just saying like even in that case I don't even know that I prefer it. I don't think I care because, you know, but but go on. You were making a, a larger point, I think. No, I was just saying, like, I don't know why people, there, people start, seem to be up in arms about people rolling spin downs. Like, let it happen. It doesn't really yeah, matter. I've heard people complain They're about that. generally before. random. Yeah. I've, people have complained about that for since they started putting spin downs in pre-release kits and people had a lot of access to them. Yeah. Because people use them for keeping track of their life, so they roll them to see who goes first, and people complain about that, and it's ridiculous. It is, because, like, we we might end up talking about this again next week, because we're probably going to cover the D20 mechanic next mm-hmm. week. Uh, but, like, like I was just saying, is if you roll a spin-down die, or a randomized die, either one, if you do a legitimate roll, the product of that is a random number, you know? Yeah. And and if you don't roll it legitimately, if you somehow finesse it to get a result that you wanted, then you are cheating by manipulation of game materials, which is the same thing as stacking your deck. And like yeah. that's a thing that we stop people from doing by punishing them when we catch it and like you pay attention to your opponent and point it out if you think it's happening, you know? And like if mm-hmm. you don't think that's happening, then it doesn't matter. And if you do think that's happening, call a judge because they're yeah. cheating. Yeah. Like, but, but that's kind of <laughs> going off on a wild tangent. Well, that's what this episode's about, right? It's going off on tangents. <laughs> I mean, to some extent. But like I was just saying, boardwalk-games.com. That was kind of what I wanted to get out of this bit. And uh, and also, you know, I, I always feel like. There should be a good segue from boardwalk-games.com to patreon.com. These are both websites. And like I, we're talking about ways you can support the show and support Donovan and, and basically take away your money, you know? But I never yeah. feel like I can smoothly segue between them. So I get like this awkward long sentence about it. Well, you know, I, I always, uh, one of my favorite podcasters always says if you want, less stuff for more money, you can go to my Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, basically, there's all kinds of uh, creators and creatives and causes and products and stuff that you could spend your money on that you will get, like, better EV than our Patreon. But if you just want to make me happy, patreon.com slash Anonymous. Actually, it's not even that. I'm an idiot. Patreon.com slash Planeswalkers would be a nice thing for me. Yeah. Uh, we also normally um, 
open up a pack of cards for our giveaway on Patreon, because that's one of the very few things that we offer our Patreon subscribers. As we open up some cards every week on the show, and we make stickers on them. Do we do that? I haven't been doing uh, that. <laughs> uh, No, I've been sneaking in there and been putting stickers on the cards. Okay. Uh, but we open up a pack every episode. We make a pile. At the end of the month, we give away everything that Try we it. opened up. Oh, no? Okay. To... I don't seem to know how this works at all. No. To a winner. And we are going to get to that this episode. But not yet. What? Because today we are talking about card evaluation, sort of. What we're actually talking about is an On the Shoulders of Giants episode. Which is kind of a, a series of episodes within our larger podcast. Where we talk about some of the like most influential or... Well, I think the idea is supposed to be to to take grand ideas from magic personalities of yesteryear mm-hmm. and deliver them to the people today. Right. And and a lot of the time, I, I feel like I, I need to... I, I don't want to come across like we're condescending to our audience, being like, we don't think you understand this idea, so we're going to explain it to you. Frequently, these are ideas that... Well, I mean, frequently, these are ideas that I don't know about. <laughs> And Duncan's like, hey, we should talk about this. I'm like, oh, yeah, we should do that, Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, but, like, frequently these are ideas that have kind of, like, in- entered the magic consciousness. And, like, whether they people arrived at these conclusions on their own or they learned about it from these uh, content creators from the past, like, they're things people understand. But we just think it's interesting to look at the people who pioneered these concepts and kind of get like a, you know, like, back-to-fundamental sort of uh, evaluation of them. Uh, and and what we've done in the past always has been uh, articles, like essay-style articles pu- published online, generally, for the magic community. And this time, I wanted to cover a podcast, like an episode of a particular so podcast. So that means that you're going to transcribe the podcast into text form and post it on our website, right? No. I am definitely not going to do that. <laughs> but then it would be a text-based article. Sort of. That would also be plagiarism, I'm pretty sure. I, honestly, I felt like we were kind of skirting the line of plagiarism on this, but not really any more so than our other On the Shoulders of Giants. It's just that we're doing the same format that this was originally posted in, which is a podcast. So, like, it's closer to that line in my mind. Uh, but, basically... Uh, I know our listeners have heard me mention limited resources on this show before. It is probably the only magic podcast that I would recommend our listeners as highly as this one. Uh, You get a very different thing from it. For one thing, it's focused specifically on limited. And for another, it's way more useful if you want to learn to win at magic than our show. (laughs) Um... (laughs) But it's the best magic podcast, in my opinion. Uh, but it is specifically focused on limited. Yeah, because you're a limited player. Yeah. Dirty limited player. Fair. Um, so I think that they've got a lot of great episodes and cool stuff, fun stuff, very, a lot of informative things. Uh, but if I had to pick just one episode of Limited Resources, this is my favorite episode. Uh, because this is probably... Yeah, but I say probably because it'd be re- I hadn't ever actually thought about 
which limited resources episodes had had the greatest effect on me and my approach to magic, but probably this would be the one because this is something that translates even into constructed magic for me. I think it's a lot less uh, useful in constructed than it is in limited, but card evaluation is something every magic player has to do. And that's what this that's this episode is about. This is episode 184. The title is Card Evaluation with Brian Wong. Because while Brian Wong was a, uh, a co-host on Limited Resources for 70 episodes, this was the first time he ever showed up on the show, and he hadn't actually planned or agreed to be a co-host yet at this point. So this is, it's kind of a long episode. It's like an hour and 50 minutes long. But a lot of that is getting into like specific examples and Brian kind of going off on tangents about things because he's like, oh, let me, let me talk about this because I don't know if I'm ever going to be back talking to this audience ever again, you know? Yeah, that's true. He wanted to get things across to the limited resources audience and then he, he was back the next episode. Yeah. Like, he came back the next episode and, like, was there every episode for almost, like, 70 episodes straight. I think he missed a couple when Marshall, like, went out of the country for, like, uh, pro tours and stuff. And Marshall did some episodes with, like, guest hosts at the pro tour. But I only know these things because I'm such a super fan. I remember those small details. Yeah. You you were mad whenever Brian Wong wasn't on the show. I was actually I was actually kind of disappointed. Brian Wong was by far my favorite co-host for Limited Resources. I really like John Laux. I like Brian Spain, and I think Louis Scott Vargas is a very intelligent and competent magic player who's probably good for the show. He's a popular personality, and he's smart and knowledgeable. You know, um, I don't like Louis as much as the other co-hosts, but it's like for me, it's like a steady progression and quality up to Brian Wong, and then I've just been disappointed that he was gone. But uh, but he really came out of the gate swinging with, with his card evaluation episode, because as far as I understand, his quadrant theory, which I don't think they say in this episode, I don't think they use that specific phrase, but... They do. Oh, okay. They do then. I didn't notice, I guess. Well... Actually, I don't know if they say quadrant theory, but they do talk about the quadrants. Right, they do use the, fr- the word quadrant. But, like, uh, as the limited resources progressed after this episode, it became one of their, like, core tenets, right? Was what they called quadrant theory, which is okay. what Brian Wong was presenting in this episode, is how he does card evaluation. And uh, I feel like I've been talking a lot about explaining what it is we're going to talk about. Um, Donovan, uh, I, I think that you listened to this episode, I assume, for the first time today. Yeah. Um, does, that I listened to for the first time today. Do you, do you want to jump into what this quadrant theory is? Sure. Um, so, you have an X and Y axis, and whenever you're plotting a, a function, if the X is positive, then it's in the the upper half, mm-hmm. the Y is positive, it's on the right half, so it's the quadrants. Sure. And do you find it to be a useful concept when doing card evaluation? No, I'm really confused about how that applies to this. No, um, Brian Wong's quadrant theory was basically that there's four parts of the game. Mm-hmm. Turns out, uh, partway through the podcast, he says there's five, and just he doesn't care about the fifth one. <laughs> but there's four parts of the game. And it's setup, parity, 
and then you move into either winning or losing from there. And, you know, you can go back and forth between those. You don't necessarily hit the parody part, but... Sure, but I'm just saying, like... Sure. You generally have, like, set up and parody and then have winning and losing. Right. But you could go set up into winning, into parody, and back out, you know? Like, but it's just, like, set up, neither player's really winning yet, and then you have the the different states of who's winning. Mm -hmm. Sometimes neither of you's winning. Right. Sometimes you're winning, sometimes you're losing. And then the fifth one is you're both winning, and it's a race. But sure, he said that one doesn't matter. So it doesn't. I I think I I think if I can put words into his mouth because I don't think that he addressed it along these lines. But I think it's kind of basically that like in evaluating the states of the game, the race is a different state than either parity or winning. But as far as your card evaluation goes, it's not real. It's either probably like a parody style situation or a winning style situation. I think what he said on the podcast was just that that kind of situation comes up so infrequently that you just don't need to evaluate cards for it. Yeah. Is what he said on this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Is that a a true racing scenario? Yeah, especially because, like, what card evaluation, especially regarding limited, what before is deciding, like, well, should I put this card in my deck or not? And you don't generally prepare for a race. Like, even as a super aggro deck, you're preparing to just aggro your opponent out, you know? And yeah. so you're not, like, planning, well, they're also going to be playing aggro, so I need to be able to race them. Yeah. Uh, but if I can dive a little deeper on each of those uh, situations, if you don't mind, is, like, the, the setup uh, state of the game is where, like, you know, yeah. you've got your opening hand, you start playing things. And, like... You're in setup as long as you haven't reached a point where you're like, okay, now I've done the thing that my opening hand was set to do. Am I winning or losing? Because like, yeah, because I say when you you say like you play a land and play a a Birds of Paradise on your first turn, your opponent has nothing in play yet, you know, so it's hard to say that you're you're winning winning at that point. I mean, you could describe that as being at parity, but that's not really true either because one of you might have a lot of stuff in their hand to do, and the other one not, you know? So, like, it's just not really similar to the other states of the game. So you got to play out some stuff and see where the game is at before you leave the setup. Yeah, I think that these quadrants are pretty comprehensive. Mm -hmm. I think that listening to the podcast, they were not evaluating cards for a lot of the scenarios that would be included in a parody situation to me. Yeah. So I feel like they have a really narrow definition of parity. Okay. And if they're going to have that narrow definition, that they are not being comprehensive. Okay. With their quadrants. But I think that parity could be more comprehensive, but they just, they are only talking about quick parity with a, in an attrition based matchup where neither of you have any cards left. Sure. Is how they evaluated cards throughout the episode. But there's plenty of parody situations such as board stalls where a lot of the cards they talked about would be very different from what they said. Okay. And they may talk more about that in other episodes. Yeah, possibly. I'm, I'm not thinking of anything in particular that I can reference like, oh yeah, they've said this, you know? Um, mm-hmm. In my mind, my understanding of parody that I glean from limited resources generally, but may also just include my own stuff, you know? is that it generally is either your board is stalled out because you've both played everything, you know, and, like, 
Now you're just waiting to see who's going to get something that's going to change things. And that can either be you both have three creatures and neither one of you have good attacks, or neither one of you have any creatures and neither. And so, like, you're just waiting to see something change. Or you could be sitting there with a full hand, maybe, but, like, you don't have anything to do that's going to change the situation, but your opponent's also not pressuring you. So, like, you're just... Just any situation where something needs to change in order to progress the game. Yeah, like I, I think that the, I would call that parody, and that's just not... They were not using that broad definition of it during this episode. Okay, well, why don't, why don't you tell me what... They were talking about... In a, you're in a parody situation if neither of you have anything going on and you need the cards on the top of your deck to, to change stuff. Mm-hmm. But they were not counting you having creatures in play other than maybe one or two bears or something left over from previous kerfuffles. Oh, I don't know. I feel like when they were discussing the uh, like Mirror Entity versus Cloud Goat Ranger example that they went on about for a while. That's not in this episode. Yeah, it is. What? Yeah, Brian Wong kind of went on a bit of a tangent. It's sort of related, but he's like, oh, one of my favorite things to ask people about that I've never had anyone agree with me on is Mirror Entity versus Cloud Goat Ranger. And he described how each of them stacks up in the Quadrant Theory and why each of them is a really good card but he thinks the Cloud Goat Ranger is actually better than Mirror Entity. And then afterwards, Marshall's like, oh, was Not the... in the episode I listened to. Really? Yeah. Because I'm definitely getting the impression that you listened to the correct episode, and I listened to it also today, but, like, that's in there. Not on Apple. It's not in the Apple iTunes version of this episode. How long is the Apple iTunes version of the episode? Uh, an hour and 49 minutes. Yeah, that's... I don't think anything's cut. I swear, dude. You don't remember them talking about this? No. I promise it's in there. I, like, I don't think it's worth me, like, trying to go and find, like, the timestamps or anything. But, like... Maybe I just missed that bit, because I was, I mean, I was listening to this while doing other stuff. But I don't remember them referencing any cards that were outside of the, um, Return to Ravnica block. Well, they, they mostly didn't. It was just, like, like I said, it was kind of a tangent thing. But it also... Sure, I'm just saying, like, I don't remember that happening at all. Okay. Well, the only point I was making was that when they were talking about that, like, it doesn't doesn't really matter. As long as we both listen to the right episode, it really doesn't matter whether this is from something else or you missed it or whatever. Uh, My point, though, is just uh, what the conversation I remember them having, um, they were talking about Mirror Entity, which is a 1-1 that can, like pump your whole team for a plus X plus X, you know? And like, yeah, I kind of feel like they did talk about like what it's like if you have nothing but mirror entity. Cause that, that especially cause that's like in the losing situation. That's like one way they, as an example of a losing situation, you've got nothing and you play mirror entity, you know? Um, it's, it's crap because it's a, it's a one, one and then you've got to put mana into it to get more than that. Right. Uh, yeah. But when they were talking about how it performs that parody, I think part of why they felt like it was strong at parity is to pump your whole team, you know? It was like an overrun. Uh, but I, I was just saying that I I think that they included the idea, like, you have a bunch of stuff. It's just, if it's at parity, it's, you don't have anything that matters right now. Like, your opponent is either countering all the stuff that you have or, like, the stuff that you have isn't going to win you the game, you know? 
But what? But that that's beside the point, really. I I wanted to bring that up because I really felt like throughout the episode they're really leaving out a lot of stuff. Yeah. As far as card evaluation goes for the parody situation. Mm -hmm. So like especially when they got to the Dragon Shift card at the end. They were talking about Dragon Shift and how it's good whenever you're winning and it can be um, really good whenever you're setting up. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of mediocre when you're at parody and it's really bad. It's bad when you're losing, but you could like it's not unplayable there. Yeah. When they're talking about parody, like it's not really gonna do anything because you don't. It's you're just like you know you can turn one of your creatures into a four four and hit like hit them, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's like that's not great. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but what about all the situations when you're at parody and you both have like some dinky two threes and stuff in play, and you have three or four of those and you play dragon shift and literally kill them. And then Marshall started going off on a tangent about one time in a draft he had a dragon shift and he tried to set up for a, a kill with it and his opponent played a millennial gargoyle and foiled him. Yeah. But I'm just like, yeah, but like, just because one time it didn't work out, I feel like the card's still good in that kind of scenario. Yeah. Especially in limited where if you've gotten this board stall going, seven mana instants aren't really that hard to cast. Sure. But, eh. Okay, well... I, I don't even necessarily disagree with you because I don't want to just. I don't be really like think a, Dragon's Shift needs to have its like limited resources, <laughs> limited rating race or anything. I was just commenting like they kept bringing up scenarios like that, and I'm just like, well, like yeah, sure, but like I think that this card is better in some versions of parody than others. Yeah, and it may just be that like the way that you play or think about magic, you end up in those situations maybe more often than they do, or something. And so, like, maybe maybe they're, like, aware of what you're talking about, but to them, they didn't think it was, like, worth bringing up. And, and you're like, I think this is really you got gotta important. keep in mind that this episode's eight years old, yeah. right? So, limited was different then, That's true. and taking removal was better than it is now. Mm -hmm. So now you're more likely to end up in board stalls than you were then. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. Uh, but like I was saying, I, I didn't even mean to, like, argue with you about what you were saying, because I don't want to just be a limited resources apologist on this show. So, like... Yeah, you Well, I am going to come across that way, because I'm a big fan. I even... I support their Patreon. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh... But, like, we, we talked about setup. Uh, we kind of just talked about parody a bit. And, like, winning and losing is way easier to describe. Like, you know if you're winning or losing. You know, if, like, you... If you're thinking to yourself... Oh man, as long as they don't do anything crazy, I've got this in the bag, you're winning, you know? And if you're on the opposite end of that, if you're looking at the board going like, oh man, I better do something or I'm going to lose, you're losing, you know? Yeah. And and the, the idea is like, if you walk up to any game of Magic and look at what's going on, it is basically has to be in one of these five, technically, situations, right? One of these five quadrants? Right. And, uh, and, uh, I think part of, like, I think Brian Wong said right at the very beginning, part of the idea here is a lot of people, and I don't know if this is necessarily true anymore, and I don't know if that's because this is an older concept or because I, I don't know, I know a lot more advanced players now, but I definitely, like, can relate to this as like, oh yeah, I experienced that a lot when I, a long time ago, you know, but like, Brian Wong says, like, a lot of people look at card evaluation as kind of like, oh, is this an early game or late game card? And he's like, 
I don't really think that's useful because some cards, I, I don't think he said this bit, but like some cards are cheap cards, but you don't play them until way late in the game, you know? But basically, like if a card has a high mana cost, it's a late game card. That doesn't really tell you whether or not it's good thing for you to play late in the game. It really matters what's going on in the game. And so he's kind of developed this idea of like, well, these are the things that might be going on in the game in a very uh, broad sense, you know? Like, one of these four things is going on. So now, yeah. how does the card look, you know? Yeah, and his goal when doing card evaluations is to find cards that have the best average score for the four zones. Right. Some of the zones may be weighted, though, like um, the... The winning zone and the setup zone are a, li- are a little bit less important to him than the parity and losing zones. Yeah, and I think one of the places where I don't, like, disagree, like, I don't think they're wrong. Like, I think I probably value the setup uh, quadrant more he- more highly. Than- sure. But, but their basic logic is that if you're winning the game, any ham sandwich will do, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like... You, the just, kind- you just need a... You need your sandwich, and you need to hit them with it, right? right? And, like, the kinds of cards that don't don't help when you're winning, generally you don't put into your deck. Yeah. And so the... the And then the, the setup section of the game is just so much shorter than the others that your likelihood of drawing the card then is lower, so that's less important to them just because sure. you're less likely to see the card during the setup portion. Yeah. And if you have a card during the setup portion, you're more likely to have it during one of the other sections than vice versa. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, yeah, that one's important to have correct, but like, as long as the card's not like actively bad there, yeah, that's really all they're worried about. Sure. And like, I think some cards may not want to play a rogue elephant in limited. Yeah, and like some cards kind of like look bad in the setup section, and, like, kind of are, I guess. Like, I just mean, like, some really expensive cards are, like, they're not great in setup because you're not going to get to play that whilst things are setting up before you reach some other state, you know? But you can mm-hmm. also, like, kind of think of the setups as when you get to the time when you would play that card. You know, if something else isn't going on, how does it perform, you know? Yeah, they frequently refer to the setup portion as, like, if you played the card on curve. Yeah, it's like... So if if the, this card costs four and you play it on turn four, how good is that? As assuming that the that one of these other situations doesn't apply better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it seemed like the uh, they care more about the parity situation and even more so about the situation where you're losing because like that's the point where you need something, you know? Yeah. I think I focus a little more on the parity situation of the game than Brian Wong does. Yeah. Um, Brian Wong is a lot more worried about the losing situation. Yeah. Because he talks about all the time on this podcast episode, at least, that really what's important to him is how many games he would win with this card that he wouldn't win if he didn't have that card, if he just had some other random card from his deck. Yeah. And so that's what he looks for on this stuff, mm-hmm. which I'm a little bit curious about how much that affects the fact that he is a big name in the Seattle area, but not everywhere else. Yeah. Is that he gets these decks that are not as consistent, but have really high power. I don't know. I think, uh, cause like, especially when they got to the unflinching courage versus putrefy, mm-hmm. 
If I am first picking a pat card, I am taking the Putrefy over Unflinching Courage 100% of the time. I don't remember what Unflinching Courage is on my head. It's a 3-mana aura that gives plus 2, plus 2, Trample, and Lifelink. But is it is it monocolored? Because that would make a... Green, no. Green, white, and one. I don't know, man. And so I'm just like, I, I don't think that it's wrong to take the Unflinching Courage over a Putrefy... I think, though, if I am first picking a card out of that pack, and those are the two cards I'm down to, I'm taking the Putrefy because it's always good. Yeah. And the Unflinching Courage I'm passing on because sometimes it's actively bad. Yeah. Whereas Brian Wong said, I'm taking the Unflinching Courage because it's an effect that I'm not going to get with anything else, and it's going to be very powerful when it's good. I'm going to pass on the Putrefy because I might find a five-mana removal spell later that serves the same purpose. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's wrong. Right. I just think that he's more worried about the having the the really swingy deck. Yeah. And I'm more interested in having a really a, a a consistent deck. Yeah. And I am not even a well known name in the Dallas area, so like obviously his advice is better than mine. But I'm just I'm just curious because his attitude would lead you to those. If I'm if I'm correct about the extrapolation there, mm-hmm. it would lead you to these decks that just are amazing whenever you you run hot on it. Yeah. But whenever you don't run hot, you're like, well, I just put this unflinching courage on my two two, and my opponent putrefied it, and I lost both of them. You know. Yeah. No. So it's just like I'm just like I'm curious if there's some kind of correlation there or not, and probably not. It's probably just he doesn't he doesn't go to big tournaments. That's what Marshall was talking about during the thing, was that Brian didn't go play GPs around the world and stuff. He played Magic in Seattle. Yeah. I, I think I think that's fairly accurate. Like I said, I don't disagree with you about any of the point that you're making. It's just, as far as your question, like, oh, I wonder this, is like, I can't answer that. But being a lot sure. more familiar with Brian Wong from having listened to, like, 70 episodes that he was co-hosting rather than just the one is... I think he is pr- pretty consistent, and like, because uh, I think the next episode he did, not the very next episode, but the next episode he did that, he, like, he brought the topic and was talking like, well, this is how Brian Wong approaches things, was like going infinite on Magic Online is how you can continue drafting without ever spending money because that's something that he does, and like, you have to win consistently to do that. So like, I don't think that he does actually have lots of really swingy results, but like you were just saying, he plays at local events in Seattle, and he plays online. He doesn't go to GDs or anything, you know? Uh, but but I do. I think you're probably right in that he cares more about the, like, losing situation than the parity situation, or, or values the parity situation lower than you do, maybe. Um, I think I'm, I similarly care more about cards that get me out of a situation that I'm losing. I don't necessarily have the same idea of, like, I want cards that will help me win a game that I would otherwise lose because I'm I'm less confident about what exactly that means and, like, being able to know that. Um, and, and I don't value cards as highly, like you were saying, that like, oh, this effect I'm not going to get from anything else, you know? I don't really care about that unless it's an effect I particularly want, you know? Um, yeah. which I, I assume that he particularly wants. I guess he probably has that same idea, and he just didn't say that because it's understood. But yeah. But to me, 
that part that's just understood is way more important than the uniqueness part, you know? It's like, if it's a desirable effect, I don't really care that it's unique, except that I might be like, oh, well, I really want this, and I'm not going to get an opportunity to take it later, so I'll take it now. You know, like, that makes sense to me. But it's not something I really think about very much. Um, yeah. But I, I do really like the, like, cards that can dig me out of a hole. Like, that's something that I'm I'm actively looking for, too. Sure. I'm just trying to not get in that losing scenario. <laughs> sure. That makes sense, too. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stay out of that quadrant. Yeah. And so, so like you said, they, uh, their advice is to try and find cards that will score favorably in any situation, ideally. Uh, but it is, in, in the opinion of limited resources, kind of more important that a card be good when you're behind than when you're ahead. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's reasonable. And, like, how they feel about parity and setup, we may just ver- vary on from, from their ideas some, but the, the basic uh, dichotomy there, I think we, we agree with. It's like cards that help you sure. when you're losing are more important than cards that help you when you're winning. Because, like, yeah. like you said, if, if you're already winning the game, like, you wouldn't want to try and win without drawing any more cards, you know? You want all the resources that you can have, even if you're winning. But, like, if you're already winning, if you're saying, hey, if nothing changes, I'm going to win, then it's a lot less important what you're drawing, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know if we wanted to get too much into it, but um, some of the things they talked about was stuff like uh, wrath effects are very good when you're behind. Yeah. And they can be fine when you're at parity, because if you just have one less creature in play than your opponent then, like, playing the Wrath might still be, like, a three-for-three three or whatever, right? Sure. It's like, okay, well, we're continuing parity, right? Right. I stopped them from pulling ahead on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just, like, actively bad when you're winning. Yeah. And not necessarily... Like, they could be really good during the setup phase. Like, yeah, if your opponent be. just had a better setup, you just reset them, and you're still going, yeah. you know? Or you can, like, manipulate how you perform during the setup because you're aware that you can wrath. Yeah, that you're going to play this wrath on four. Yeah. Right? So, like, you don't play your three drop just because, you know, well, the next turn I'm just going to wrath. So... Yeah, so it's just, like, they talk about that, and so, like, I think that's interesting because, like, I think I don't want to play wraths in my deck in limited oh, really? in general. Um, I prefer to have it more as a sideboard option mm-hmm. um, because I just I just feel like if I don't draw the Wrath, I'm less likely to fall into that scenario where I need it. Okay. That makes sense. I think I like to have one in my deck if I can, uh, but I wouldn't want two or three. That's that's fair. And I, I, I say that, but like and like and I think most of the times when I end up with a Wrath, I end up playing it. But I think a lot of times when I have a Wrath, mm-hmm. I then try to draft my deck to play that Wrath. Sure. Because I know it's a powerful effect. Yeah. But there's a lot of times where the deck, like, I just, I don't really want to play, you know? Sure. And, like, I think, uh, in Constructed, I'm perfectly happy to play a deck that has, like, three Wraths in my hand, right? Uh, in mm-hmm. Limited, you really don't want that. And so, I don't, it's not like I'm going to take every Wrath I can and pu- pu- put them all in my deck, even though that would be great for my Constructed deck, you know? Uh, I'm probably not going to do that, because... There's just not enough of them in any limited environment that you could, like, 
do that and have a bomb and be like, oh, I'm just going to wrap. I did have turn. three culling rituals in my draft deck. The other day. What, is, what is culling ritual? I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know it. Saving one that destroys each non-land permanent CMC two or less, and then you get a black or green mana for each one you destroy that way. Man. I had three of those. It was silly. <laughs> and I played them, too, because I'm like, well, I have three of these. We are going to try to ramp with this. <laughs> and, like, made, like, as many pests as I could, and then, like, tried to play bookworms off of it. Yeah. How did that go? I think it went, like, I think it went, like, five and three. Like, I mean, that's successful. Yeah. Not bad, you know? <laughs> like, that was pretty sweet. Yeah. I had, like, I had three Culling Rituals and two Witherbloom Commands, which are black-green rares. Wow. I was, like, five black-green rares on top of whatever monocolored ones I ended up with. Man. Sounds like you were in the right lane for that draft. And, like, I only went five and three. Sounds like I'm not that great at this. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but I, I don't know. I was I saying, like, I, I think that I agree with the evaluation of, of board sweeps, basically. Is that, like, yeah, they're really bad when you're ahead, and you don't want, like, your whole deck to be cards that are bad when you're ahead because you want to be ahead. So you don't want your deck to be full of stuff that's bad, but most stuff isn't bad when you're ahead, and it's not the most important yeah. category. And that's why I wanted to bring that up, because I thought that was a card, that a, a thing that was interesting, because it was, this is bad when you're ahead, but you kind of still want it in your yeah. deck, and I don't think they're wrong. I just think in the past, I've been really worried about that, like, I, I don't want to have this because it's going to be bad when I'm ahead, and I think that that was probably wrong of me. Okay. You know? Sure. I think uh, that's what I try to do when we do these on the shoulders of giants episodes is I try to be better. Yeah. I think that's, you know, ideally that's the, the, the best case scenario for these episodes is like, if our audience can hear it or think about it or go and read the article and, and it can help them and listen to the podcast. Yeah, They can help them improve in, in their own magic game. That's great. I think mostly what I get out of it is a nostalgia trip. Because since I have the privilege of just picking the things that we do, it's like, there are always things that I'm familiar with. And, like, I really liked and found impactful for me a long time ago. And ideally, I will also get something new out of it, or at least be reminded of something that can help me improve. But, like, mostly I'm just like, oh, yeah, this was a good one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I, um, was there any other, like, interesting uh, card scenarios that you wanted to talk about through well, there? One, one that I like uh, because a very long time ago, this was a trap that I that I fell into myself and then kind of graduated out of before I even encountered limited resources ever, but I see other people in all the time when they're new players, and I think this, this quadrant theory is good at explaining why it's a trap, is fog effects. Oh yeah, they're just wrong. <laughs> Limited resources does not know how to play fog and limited. Apparently, I don't know, man. They're just doing it wrong. I disagree with you. Like fog is just bad in limited, and in constructed, it's generally bad. If you design, you one of the interesting things is like we're we're largely focusing on limited because this is a limited resources podcast. But like I said at the beginning, this isn't. But no, this isn't. The thing we're talking about is a limited resources podcast. Oh, I know. I'm just. Um, but. I said that the, a lot of the card evaluation can translate into Constructed. It doesn't translate nearly as well, because like they mentioned on the show, in Constructed, you can be in game states that really don't fit these quadrants. Mm -hmm. um, 
I still think these quadrants are the most common game states, even in constructive. And so this, this concept of card evaluation can be useful for you when evaluating cards for constructed. It's just a lot of times in constructed, you also have to consider, but did I build my deck to work in this scenario or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. or do I think my deck is likely to end up in this scenario? Right. So yeah, like combo decks, they never are winning. <laughs> sure. They're, e- they're either losing or they've won. Sure. That's fair. Uh, but also like it, you, you could build a constructed deck. That's like a super aggro deck. And so and be like, we're never going to be at, like, parity. I'm going to go from setup to winning, or I'm going to go from setup to losing, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, my, my point being that, like, this, I think, is useful for Constructed as well. And, that, and I brought that up as part of the Fog thing, because I think that Fog is generally bad and Constructed, but there are decks and stuff that make good use of it. Because constructed yeah. is different, and it and there are places where like the this quadrant theory doesn't really apply in constructed, right? Yeah. But generally, fog is not great in like any of the scenarios. Sure, it's just it's a it's a winning or parody card. But even at winning, but, like you don't need it, and at parody, it's pretty narrow. That depends on what's going on with the game state as far yeah, as winning goes. I feel like you're bringing up like a corner case basically i think that fog is a card that you don't want more than one of in your limited deck and you probably don't ever pick it but if you end up with one and your deck like can use it that one fog in your deck isn't bad i'm not gonna in limited i'm not gonna argue that with you not because i'm like well this isn't worth arguing about i just mean like it sounds to me like you have put enough qualifiers on that then like I'm sure you're right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I just, I'm just saying, though, like, they talked about, like, trying to use Fog to race or trying to use it whenever you're losing. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how you use it in Limited. Okay. You use Fog so that your opponent made a bad attack. You turn your opponent's good attack into bad attack. How? Because they're going to make attacks... If they're attack in a parity situation, if they're making an attack, mm-hmm. they're expecting you to have to do a specific thing when you block. Okay. And you play the fog, and you can do it differently, right? Okay. And if you're a, if you are in a winning situation, your opponent can sometimes do stuff like dragon shift all their creatures and try to kill you, mm-hmm. and you can play a fog and continue killing them. You know? Okay. You can use it to counter combat tricks. Yeah. Because your opponent attacked in, you double blocked, and then they gave their guy plus five, plus five in first strike or whatever, and you're like, well, no. Sure. We're fogging that. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to use fog, but then don't you, what, isn't what you end up with is an extremely narrow counterspell? Um, if, I think it is a, a narrow counterspell, but it narrowly hits a bunch of different scenarios. Yeah. And so I like it. I don't know. I just feel like the only reason why a counterspell wouldn't be better than a fog generally would be the fact that fog generally just costs one. Like, there's some fog effects that cost more, but fog costs one and some other fog effects cost one, and counterspells usually cost more. And so, but my point is, like, I'm a big fan of counterspells. I like counterspells, Uh, but they're generally not great in limited. 
And it's because if you don't, uh, because in a lot of games, you just won't see the opportunity to use it. And so it ends up just being a blank card, you know? I also think it's funny that one of the two fogs that was legal in the format they are talking about was, like, one of the best cards in the format. Oh, what was it? Druid's Deliverance. Wow, I don't even so remember. Green and one, prevent all combat damage that we dealt to you this turn, populate. Okay. So you get to, you just, you you let your opponent attack, you prevent any damage that's dealt to you, you make another copy of your 3-3 three, three, just destroy their blocker attackers. Sure. I... And so it's just, I don't. I think that that was one of the better cards in the format, and it's funny to me. I would say that they were not specifically talking about fog effects that were illegal in that format, because I mean they talked about riot control, which is a much less good. Card. I and that's what one of the things that brought it up. I think one of the reasons they talked about fog though in more depth is because fog is like one of the cards Marshall has like a soapbox about. If people like fog, yeah, like no, it's bad, and so. There are, so Yeah, I just, sure, I just, my problem with it, though, is I have a problem with people arguing things poorly. Yeah. And every time they talked about a scenario where, like, to play Fog in, they were not talking about scenarios where you should be playing Fog. Yeah, because they were pointing out that, that it's bad to play Fog in these scenarios. Except for they were saying, you can use it for this, and that's good, but that's not a good use of Fog. Okay. They're saying you can so. use it to try to race, or you can use it... To try to buy yourself one more turn, but that's bad, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are not good things to put Fog in your deck for. Right, I think that was their point. And you're saying yeah, that there is just... a good thing that you can put Fog in your deck for that they didn't talk about. Yes. Okay. I I, I think that we're talking about a pretty corner case thing, though. It's like, there's this I'm just situation. saying, I don't like it when people argue things poorly, and they're saying people play Fog to do this, but people who are playing Fog shouldn't be playing it for that reason. Okay, that, true, but, like, that's the point, though, is, like, people do play it for those reasons, and those are bad. But I'm trying to get them to convince me not to play Fog, and they're not doing a good job of that. Uh, but also, like, earlier on in the episode, Marshall said something about an unplayable card, and Brian was like, well, I'll, I'll pretty much play any card, given the right scenario or the right things about my deck. I don't really like to say cards are unplayable, and Marshall did his whole thing. He's talked about this before and since, yeah. but he's like, well, okay, right, uh, me too, but I have this whole thing about my podcast, and I don't, and I prefer to, to draw a hard line on cards when they're generally not good, so that people don't get the wrong impression, you know? Yeah, I just think that Fog being my 23rd card in my deck happens a lot more than they give it credit for. I think it probably happens a lot more for you than it does for them. But not necessarily because you shouldn't do it, but just, like, that's not a thing that they like. They don't... They prefer not to do that. Uh, that's fair. Um, I guess another one that I thought was a good... Uh, a good example of how uh, this card evaluation works and how it can be effective for helping you understand your cards was when they were talking about threaten effects. I think that was a really good one. Because... Those, those are another effect that looks really good to a new player or someone who's not skilled at card evaluation um, and can be good, but generally isn't really what you want, especially in limited. You know, yeah. Because uh, threat and effect, when you're ahead, that can be good, assuming you have targets for it, right? It's good, fine, whatever. I mean, it's that's one of those ones, like, if you're ahead, it's good, unless it's not, in which case you don't need it. Right. Like, 
Yeah. It, it's good and as long as you're ahead, and then when your opponent does something to make you back at parity, you're like, no, nah, I'm still ahead. Yeah. So, like, so it, it's pretty good when you're ahead. Uh, and when you're at parity, it's, it's okay. It's fine. Can be. Not always. You know? Like, say you, you, you steal your opponent's creature for a turn, and then, like, they don't have good blocks, and you can hit them for lethal or something that can win you a game. Or you can steal their creature for a turn, hit them with it, and maybe sacrifice it to something. That's good. That's good. It's like parity might be its best case scenario, you know? But when you're losing, it does stone nothing. Like it's, most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. Fair. Like, there may... Again, corner cases, you could probably bring yeah. up where, like, it can work when you're losing. And then, like, in the, mm-hmm. in the setup, it's also kind of just blank. Like, I think that's where it's really the worst. Yeah. Is the setup phase. Because, like, if you, on turn three or four, you play the threaten effect and take their 2-2 or 3-3 or whatever and hit them with it, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, eh. I think in the losing situation, assuming that they have I target... The, I think the corner cases where losing situations is better is more common than the corner cases where in setup it's good. I guess that's fair. Because, like, the, the situation I'm thinking of in a losing situation where it, where it excels is, like, if your opponent attacks you with two two twos and you've got nothing but you're able to threaten one and block and kill both their dudes. Yeah, that's super uncommon, though, because most threaten effects are sorceries. Yeah. But I'm thinking, like, there's times where your opponent plays a creature that's just way better than anything you have, Yeah. and they are crushing you, right? Mm-hmm. But you draw the threaten effect, and you're like, huh, if I take that one, I can kill them. Sure. You know? Yeah. Or there's times where your opponent plays a creature... That has the ability to sacrifice for some effect mm-hmm. if you threaten it. Yeah. And, like, you can threaten it, and they can't pay the cost to sacrifice it, so you get to take it, attack them with it, and then sacrifice it. Or something along those lines, sure. you know? And I think that those types of scenarios are more common than times where it's really useful to play this threaten effect on curve. Yeah. And so I'm just saying, I think that the the it's worse on curve than when you're losing. Yeah. Uh, so, although I think when it's bad when you're losing, it is worse than when it's bad when you're on curve. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's just because you're when you're losing, it's worse for you for cards to not be good. Right. I think that overall, the the answer is like, sure, it passes at winning because pretty much everything does right, and yeah. uh, at parity, it passes. It's probably good most of like most of the time. It's good. And when you're losing, though, it fails. It's pretty bad. Like, it may not be the worst card you could have, but it fails, right? And at setup, yeah. it's like <laughs> rock bottom fails. So, mm-hmm. and really, it's in- what's interesting here to me, or part of what's interesting to me, is that it's passing on two of the four quadrants, right? But overall, we're like, eh, it's probably not good. It can be. Depends on your deck, you know, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, but... It's just not good enough, I think. Yeah. Like, if I'm playing those types of decks that don't ever want to get into parity or losing scenario, you know, like, if I got to a losing scenario, we're, we're dead anyways. Yeah. You know, if I'm playing that kind of deck, I, I frequently like to have one copy of Threaten Effects in the deck. Sure. In Limited. Because it's like, okay, we can use this to finish them off quite often. Yeah. But I don't like it in general in Limited, you know? Mm-hmm. But I do like it. There are a lot of decks that I put a threaten effect in 
and I'm happy having it the whole time. Yeah. But it is those types of decks where I try to get on the ground running and stay running, you know? Sure. Oh, uh, so... I, but yeah, it's, it's that card's kind of medium most of the time, and so it's just like, in general, just don't want that in your deck. Yeah, uh, but I think that brings up an interesting point about, like, sometimes there are cards that are like, they don't really score very well in, like, any, any of three of the quadrants, but, like, on one of them, they super excel, you know? And... Mm-hmm. Uh, when that one is when you're winning, those cards aren't good enough. That's generally what we call win more cards. Correct. Like if if the 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 one area where it excels is winning, it's not a good card. But if it excels in any of those other situations, that might be good enough. Yeah, like they're talking about like Lanorel, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they're talking about like they play it all the time. Brian tries not to draft them. Yeah. But he said I think he said that he plays them quite often. Sure. If he has them. Right. You know? And, like, Marshall, I think, was saying that he might even more prioritize picking them than Brian does. Yeah. But, like, Lanor else is great at setup mm-hmm. and really bad anywhere else. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think just kind of in, in a general sense, uh, you want cards that are good everywhere. Right? That's ideal. If you don't have that, cards that are really good in anything but the winning situation might be cons- considered, like, depending on your deck, right? Cards that are really good in setup might not be what you want if you've got a control deck where you generally feel like you're going to be winning, losing, or parity. Yeah, you may not want to play your Llanowar Elves in this deck where you actually ended up drafting two Wrath of Gods. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, like, it, it, it may depend more on your deck whether or not you specifically want those cards that really excel in an area. But I think, like, the tiers are, like, cards that are good in multiple situations cards are really good in situations that aren't winning then cards that are mediocre and so then this is where our threatens end up right it's like cards that are mediocre Mm -hmm. in in some areas and not in others and then like the the bottom that i guess the really the bottom is cards that are not good in any situation right but if we just ignore that that layer like the the worst cards are cards that are like only good when you're ahead yeah, the worst cards that you may want to actually put in your deck. Sure. Cards that are only good when you're ahead. And, and that happens. There, every once in a while you'll do that, but generally you're not happy that you're doing that. You're like, well, I need something else, like a playable card. I'm like, ah, oh, this, this card has its spot where it's useful, so I'll stick it in, you know? Yeah, like Madcap skills. <laughs> yeah, this was an episode where they talked about Madcap skills for a while, huh? Mm-hmm. And that was... That was a thing at the time. His... I think Madcap Skills was one of those cards that really excels when you're winning. Yeah. But is still okay in setup. Right. And so, like, they're like, okay, we'll play and this. Par- like, it's okay at parity, too. It, yeah, at parity, it's usually fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, like, really good at winning, but it's not only good there. Like, it's not, I guess you might say it's only good But I think there, but when, no. think that the game episode, the, one of the things they talked about is they're like, yeah, we thought this was just bad mm-hmm. anywhere but when you're winning. Yeah. And then it turns out, oh, this is actually kind of fine when you're at setup or parity. Right. Oh, it's probably bad when you're losing. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think we've kind of touched on it several times. I don't know if we've been explicit though. Th- this this episode came out in 2013, so this was right after Dragon's Maze had had come out, and the the format, I guess, at the time was Gate Crash Dragon's Maze. Um, I believe it was single packs of 
RTR gate crash and dragon space, right? Oh yeah, return. I'm sorry, I just <laughs> forgot that that there was a a set before gate crash. <laughs> So yeah, you had Return to Ravnica, Gate Crash, Dragon's Maze would have been the limited environment at the time. Uh, and it what what was Madcap skills it, from? Uh, Gate Crash, I think. Okay. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add about, or that you wanted to talk about, as far as the um the our evaluation of this episode? No, I think that um this is a thing that I'm going to try to do going forward more with my limited play. Yeah. Uh, because I'd heard of Brian Wong's Quadrant Theory before, but I hadn't actually listened to the... Yeah, probably (laughs) from you. But I hadn't actually listened to what it meant, you know? Um, and I think that I'll try... I don't think that I'm really likely to, like, go, all right, which quadrants is this good for in my decks? Because that's not the kind of deck builder I am. Sure. But I think I am going to try to pay more attention to cards that... Not putting cards in my deck that are only good when I'm winning... Mm -hmm. And trying to put cards in my deck that are are better when I'm losing. Yeah, I think so. I I've said several times that this is like the the basics of my card evaluation ever since I listened to this episode way back in 2013. Uh, so so I've said that several times. Like, oh, this is this is how I do card evaluation. This is how, I don't actively do this like unless I have like kind of stopped and be like, okay, hold on, we're gonna do a card evaluation now. I'm going to think about this card and decide what, like, you know, then I will, like, go to the actual quadrants. Like, when I'm actively putting my brain in card evaluation mode on purpose to, like, kind of analytically examine the idea, most of the time when I'm doing card evaluation, it's just a process that I do. And I'm not even sure that I do this, this that much because, like, I learned and experienced and developed my card evaluation skills independently of this for a long time. And then I listened to this episode multiple times and thought about it a lot and was like, yeah, this makes sense to me. This is how I explain card evaluation to people when I need to explain it to them, or if I'm trying to help someone do card evaluation, or if I have like kind of stopped and like, how should I evaluate this card? Like I need to really think about it, you know? Yeah. My general just card-to-card practice of I'm looking at spoiler or whatever, I don't know how much this influences my card evaluation. Probably some, because it's something that I think is is useful and correct and I've thought a lot about in the past, but I don't actively do it, and so I don't know. Like it, My brain might kind of skip over it when I'm just looking at cards. So I kind of feel like in, in the future, like here shortly, we're going to be talking about the uh, Forgotten Realms cards, and we're going to be doing a bunch of card evaluation here uh, probably week after next, maybe even a little bit next yeah. week, because we'll be talking about the mechanics and stuff. Um, and it's very possible that I'll be like, oh, this card is good, or this card is bad, and people might be like, what? Just last week you said to think that you used the Quadrant Theory, and it's good in these quad... What do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. I might not actually do this when I'm just looking at cards and making decisions about them. Uh, but it is like the framework that I use any time that I set out to be like, okay, let me get out the card evaluation wagon, you know? Okay, yeah. Um, so what, do we want to do some card evaluation for example's sake? Yeah, so uh, like I said, this, this episode came out in 2013. They were cracking packs of Dragon Maze on limited resources, and uh, as we've talked about on at least one episode before, what? 
Dragon Maze. Dragon's Maze? There you go. Did I not say that? No. Whatever. So it's because my voice cracked. It's puberty. I can't help it. Um, they were, they were cracking packs of Dragon's Maze, and I think as we've mentioned before on this show when, when we when we do our limited shows, on limited resources, they have what they call a crack-a-pack, where they open up a pack of cards, they look at them, and decide what their first pick would be if this was their first first pack, first pick of a draft, right? And so we open up a pack of cards on each of our shows, and since we're talking about limited resources this week, and we're talking about card evaluation in particular, we thought we should do a crack pack with our pack that we opened, which is why we've saved it to the end here. We're going to open up a pack of cards. We're going to do some card evaluation. We'll do like a crack pack and pick out our first pick. And uh, in honor of the particular episode that we're talking about, I have a pack of Dragon's Maze to open. What's all the good cards? Uh, there can be Shocklands in here, right? Yeah, or uh, Voice of Resurgence, or Master of Cruelties, and I think that's it. Okay, so we've got, like, six cards. Seven? Seven cards. Ten rares in the land slot. Oh, yeah, there's Shocklands on allies and enemies. So, yeah, so, like, twelve. That's, like, twice what I said originally. There's, like, twelve cards in here. The Shocklands, though, you got, like, one in every, like, 14 packs or some shit like that. Like, All right. Actually, I think it's worse than that. You got, like, one in, like, a box or some, some something. So it's just, like, eh. So you're telling me that nobody's going to be happy. You're supposed to not count the Shocklands when you're evaluating the EV of those packs. All right. Tell you what. If we do not get any of those things, any of those 12 cards specifically out of this pack, I've still got some set boosters we can add to our to our giveaway stuff. Oh, one sec. Yeah. Let me, let me pull up a, a thing that'll tell me what good cards are in that set. Uh-huh. And we'll, we'll, we might add a couple more cards to this list so we don't just, like, waste your packs. Because there might be, like, two or three more cards that are These packs exist set. to give away, though. That's true, but I'm stingy. <laughs> All right, so Master of Cruelties and Voice of Resurgence are the only cards in the set worth more than $4. Legion's Initiative and Progenitor Mimic are, are, are worth, like, $3 and are almost there. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to count them, but... No. You know what? No. Okay, we're just gonna go with those twelve. Yeah, those twelve. We'll go with those twelve. That's fair. I just wanted to look first, not because I draw the line at four dollars, but just I know. I just think like if like Legion's End was worth seventeen dollars, and I just didn't know that. Sure. Fair. Or Legion's Initiative, sorry, was worth like seventeen dollars, and I just didn't remember that. I didn't want to leave that card. Like I would feel silly. Like if we open this card and there's like forty dollar Mythic in it, <laughs> and I'm like, well, not good enough. Sure. Guess we gotta open another pack. Right. Alright. But Master of Cruelties is the only real money card. Okay. So, so from that set. So let's hope we get a Master of Cruelties or a Shockland. Yeah. But a Voice of Resurgence is at least worth the pack price. Alright. Sweet. Here we go. Let's go. We got Is that a Mortify on the front? card? Uh no. It's a Tithe Drinker. That was good, because, like, Mortify is not in that set, so that would make no <laughs> sense. That card's in my popper deck! This is a 2-1 with lifelink and extort. Um, I don't really want to try and go over all the mechanics that are in Dragon's Maze. Do you think we sure. it matters? Nah, if they don't know what they are, they can look them up. Okay. And I got... Are we evaluating these cards? Do you want to do each one? I don't know, that's what they did on limited resources. Seems like that would take a while. Alright, cool. I, we'll I, just, we'll card evaluate... 
anything that we think stands out, okay. either poorly yeah, like, or if if you think well. it's interesting, we'll talk about it, and then we'll do an evaluation of like our actual picks or like what we're debating about, like when we book that. Is that fair? Sounds good. Okay. Then we've got How's the Snare Squad? It's a 1-4 for a white and 2, and whenever it attacks, you may pay white. If you do, tap target creature and opponent. Okay. We got a Maze Behemoth. It's a 5-4 for green and 5, has trample, and multicolored creatures you control have trample. That's another one I disagreed with their evaluation on. That was in their pack, too. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. How did they feel about it? I don't... I don't that it was good when you're ahead and bad everywhere else? And I just think that the trample ability is much more relevant when you're at parity than they were talking about, Maybe. giving all your creatures trample. I... And that it's better on curve than they were giving it credit for, too. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, Mind Static. I remember this one. A blue and three for a counter target spell unless its controller pays six. Double mana leak. Yeah. Card should have been blue, blue, and two. Just so it's double mana leak. It would have made the card worse, and it's already bad. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> Then we got a Simic Cluestone. People know what Cluestones do? Well, it costs three. Yep. It taps for blue or, or green. And for blue, green, and tap and sacrifice. You if they know what Extort does, they know what a Cluestone Okay, fair. Uh, Riot Piker is a 2-1 for red and one. First strike, and it attacks each turn if able. Neat. We got a Pilfered Plans. is black, blue, and one. Target player puts the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. Draw two cards. I probably could have said no. Mill is a thing now. Is mill two draw yeah. two? Well, target player mills two, then draw. Sinister possession is a black enchantment aura. Because whenever enchanted creature attacks or blocks, its controller loses two life. Why would I want to put that on my <laughs> cruel warrior? Crawl, 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 crawl warrior. Crawl. It's a green and one, two two. Uh, for green and five, it can get plus three plus three until end of turn. All right. Maw of the Obsidat. There's black, white, and three for a 3-3. Three, three. You can sack a creature to give creatures you control plus one, plus one until end of turn. Mobzadat. What do you think of Maw of the Obzadat? 3-3 three, three for five. Sacking a creature is kind of a big cost, but you can give everything you control plus one, plus one. Probably not. Probably not a card I'm first picking. I mean, I'm not considering it as a first pick. I just meant like, is this a good card? Card evaluate, Donovan. Uh, this card is great when you're ahead, terrible when you're losing, um... Not great on setup, yeah. and probably good when you're at parity. But even at even so at parity, it's probably not great because a lot of parity situations you can't afford to sack creatures to it and still be at parity, right? That's fair. So that's why I think it's fine. Is like you can you can break board stalls, but when if you're down, if you're just like top decking, it's just a five mana three three. Yeah. So like, so th- this card is not. Really awful in most scenarios, but it's not good enough in any scenario that it's something where we probably, yeah, I wouldn't. I probably put it as a not a great one. Yeah, we got Feral Animist it is a green, red, and one, two, one. It has three Feral Animist gets plus X plus O until end of turn where X is its power. Yep, card's pretty sweet. So that is exponential growth. Sort of only does its power, but yeah, a species gorger. A 6-6 six, six for blue, green, and 3. And at the beginning of your upkeep, return a creature you control to its owner's hand. Pretty neat. Yeah. I think I'd have to see where my deck ended up as to whether or not I played that card, but I think it could be very good. Yeah, especially if you have some ETB effects that make that drawback a, a positive. Like, that yeah. could be awesome. Mm-hmm. And we've got a Notion Thief. is a black, blue, and 2 for a 3-1 with flash. And if an opponent would draw a card except the first one, he or she draws each 
of his or her draw steps. Instead, that player skips that draw, and you draw a card. That's our rare. Card's pretty sweet. Ocean Thief is all right. Uh, but we also got a Selesnya Gilgate. Oh, no Shockland, rough. And we got a Foil Putrefy. That's not bad. Oh, neat. I guess, yeah, I don't think it's worth, like, very much, if anything, but, like, that's that's a decent thing to get. Yeah. So I, I think at least we got something out of this pack that might be, uh, not, probably not exciting, but, you know, like, that's... I'm happy to add that to hey, our... Notion display. Thief made the list of cards that are worth money from the set, according to this website I'm on. Yeah? Is that, like, one of the ones that's, it's, like, $3 or whatever? It's almost $2. Oh, okay. So we, we got one of the best rares in the set. Yeah, we got a foil we did. Fry, which is not a bad thing to yeah. get. Yeah. Uh, All right, so any cards you wanted to evaluate specifically other than what you were first picking? I put away the cards already, because I... I've gotten used to opening up packs and then putting them away. Um, yeah, but we want to do some card evaluation. Yeah, and, and we need to, to make a pick, right? I think we should card evaluate the rare, whether we're picking it or not. Sure. You know what? Um, yeah, Notion Thief, probably Putrefy. I think Putrefy they talked about on the specific episode that we are talking about, but uh, what do you think? The Species Gorger? Sure. And the Feral Animist? Okay. I think those are really the only things here... That I would consider. Actually, let's talk about the Clue Stone also. Do a card evaluation on that. Uh, I think the Riot Piker is probably a, a decent playable card, but it's not something we're going to take first pick for sure. Pilfer Plans is crap. Sinister Possession. Uh, Pilfer Plans is good. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, it probably is fine. It's just a divination that Mills target player for two, right? Yeah, true enough. It's, it's even three mana, right? Yep. Yeah, like, I mean, if you're playing blue-black, play that card. Sure. Yeah, true. Maybe you don't play seven of them, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, so, well, since we got... Let's start with Pilfered plans. Okay. Um, so, it's good in the setup phase. Yep. And you just kind of, because like... It, it gives you more resources to do your setuping with. Right. Um, you usually don't have anything going on so bad on turn three that you really need to kill something. Yeah, like, or it, put a blocker down or whatever. Like you sure. usually, that's a window where it's usually fine to just play your divination. Right, especially because like if you need to kill something or you need a blocker or whatever, you're probably not in setup anymore. I mean, it's really early in the yeah. game, but you've moved into losing territory. You know? Yeah. Um, if you're in, if you're winning, cards good helps you find more things to win more with. Yeah, it's like fine. If you're winning, it can't be bad because even if it's completely worthless you then have two more cards that might be worthwhile, you know? So thank you. Yeah. Um, at parity, it's really great mm -hmm. because it, it helps you get more resources to break parity with. Right. And when you're losing, it's it's fine because it's just yeah. like you have to spend your mana on this so you it might put you a little bit behind on what you have to play, but as long as you're not going to lose this next turn, mm -hmm. then it's probably going to be good enough to get you out of it. And if you have a lot of mana... You can play it and then play one of the things you get off of it. Yeah. So it's it's fine. I would say if you're losing but you have a lot of mana, that's a situation where it's okay. I'm kind of not so high on it if you're just like just losing and this is what you're going to do for your turn. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, if you're losing and that's what you're going to do for your turn, it's not good. But if you've got a couple of turns before you actually lose... It will help you find the things you need faster. Yeah, but I'm I'm fairly so it's better than blank. 
Yeah, it's better than blank. Oh, I agree. But I think I think that when you're losing, it's actually just not very good. That's my opinion. I don't. I like you said, it's fine. And like, I think that if you're losing and that's what you're doing with your turn, it's not very good. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you're losing, there's a lot of losing scenarios where you can draw something you can still cast off of it. Sure. So I I think I would put it at fine losing category. Yeah. But I think overall. Even with that discrepancy, but how good it is when losing. I don't think it's ever amazing. Yeah. So I do think that the losing's not great. So I, I would probably put it at like this is good. I would. Sure. I, would I want this card. Yeah, I, I think overall we're probably landing in the same place on it, even though I'm a bit more down on it when losing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about a, a clue stone? Um, it really depends on what my deck looks like. Yeah. As to whether I take this, so I'm never first picking it. Sure. I I. Um, didn't even consider first picking the clue stone. Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, like, I'm never doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, at setup, it's it's fine. You you can get you can play it on turn three, so you can play your five drop on turn four and get ahead of your opponent, right? Sure. That's fine, yeah, right? It's fine. When you're winning, it's kind of bad, but you can if you've got enough mana and you're winning, it doesn't really matter what you draw. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to make things worse for you, and it does sacrifice to draw a card. Sure. So, like, okay, I guess it's fine at winning. Yeah. If you're at parity, not great. Yeah. Um, you can cycle it and find something else, maybe, but that, you wasted your yeah, whole turn doing that, do that. If not two turns. Mm-hmm. So, like, not and good. It's pretty bad at parity. And then when you're losing, it's, it's pretty bad. Right. Like, the Pilfered Plans draws you two cards, mm-hmm. so it helps you find something. Right. Whereas this, this one just draws you one, though, and it costs you a lot more mana to do it. Right. It costs you, like, five oh. mana. Even if you split that up over the course of a couple turns, it's five mana to just replace it. Yeah, so I don't think it's good when you're losing. Yeah. So it's just like, I, I'm going to put this card as not good, mm-hmm. but something that you sometimes have to play for mana fixing. Yeah, especially, like, in the set that it's in, it ends up being more valuable than it is in a vacuum, because... In Dragon's the Maze, five color set. Yeah, you need to have mana fixing. So the fact there's no monocolored cards in that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but so the fact it's not shards of Alara or Alara Reborn, right? Yeah. That's the one that has no monocolored cards right. in it. Right. But like, so like the fact that it's mana fixing skews its position in this particular set. But just in a vacuum, as looking at it with our quadrants. Yeah, like it, if it, I was playing. Chaos drafts where cards could come from anywhere. Yeah. Almost never picking this card. Right. Like, at not just first pick, but like at any pick in a draft. Like we don't yeah, it's, I'm taking this pack, I'm taking this card pick 15. Sure. All right, how about the Feral Animist? Um, so that one's okay when you're set up, but kind of bad. Like, kind of bad, but like, it's it might be acceptable, yeah. that set up. I think it's going to be a it, little bit behind the curve for a 2-1 for 3. But, like, not far behind. It's just a dude. If you're at, still at setup, you're playing out your turn three dude. It's kind of fun. Yeah, so, like, I, I think I put it at, at kind of bad at setup, but not not a not a clue stone, right? right. <laughs> it's really good. It's it's good when you're winning. Sure. Not anything especially amazing. Yeah. If you're really late in the game and you're winning, then it's really amazing because you're like, oh, I can pay six mana and make this guy attack for eight. You know? That's sure. great. But that's... Kind of corner, Casey. Not a big yeah, deal, right? Yeah, it's generally just going to be kind of a small dude. It's like, it can't hurt you any to play him, but like... Yeah. 
at parity, it's not really good because really the best thing you're hoping for is a trade. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's not going to advance anything. It's not going it, to, but it's not going to set you back either if you cast it. I don't know. I, I'd say probably not good there either. Sure. Uh, and when you're losing, it's kind of good. Um, because it can trade with really big creatures. Sure. So I'd say it's kind of good when you're losing. It can function um, as a pseudo-removal spell. So. Yeah, it's a lot of mana, but it functions as a pseudo-removal spell. Mm -hmm. And it can trade up yeah. with cards of higher converted mana cost, although you probably had to pay more mana to do that. Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of mediocre when you're behind, and kind of mediocre at parity, and kind of mediocre when you're ahead, and kind of mediocre in setup. I think a me mediocre to good at a head. Okay, fine. Because it can close a door really sure. fast. Okay, so maybe it gets a bit more of a bump at the ahead, but like that's the one we said is kind of the least important. So I think what sure, it ends up being is mediocre, but mediocre everywhere, which is desirable. I think I don't know. I think it is. I think it's kind of bad on setup and parity. Yeah, and so I think I would put it at not desirable. Okay, I think that it's not desirable, but it's a but it's. It's a card, I'm, if it's in my, my pool, I'm going to keep my eye on whether or not I should play it, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to just dismiss it. I guess I'm, I'm thinking, like, at parity, I, I think of it as not really being bad, because in my mind, at parity, like, just casting more creatures is kind of okay. Like, that's not good, unless yeah. it's a good creature. And this and at, in the parody situation he still functions in the way that we were talking about in the losing situation if you want to just be a removal spell he can kind of do that at but parody. i think in the parody situation you're more likely going to be trading down with it. yeah and so it's case. not as good then you know what i mean sure Makes because sense. whenever you're losing you're more likely to be able to get to block and do what you want when blocking mm -hmm. and at parody your opponent's not going to attack their 4-4 into your Feral Animus with open mana. Sure, that's true. You know, but when you're losing, they may attack their two 4-4s four into your Feral Animus with open mana, and he can help make things better. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, you took four, but you, you got rid of one of the 4-4s, four you mm -hmm. know? And so, like, I think he's worse at parity than he is at losing. Yeah. Because your opponent can throw away resources, because if they don't, you're going to have fine time to stop losing. Sure. And if he sits there and makes your opponent not attack with their 4-4 four, four when you're losing, that's great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Reasonable. All right. But overall, you would put him as like, ah, this guy doesn't really pass our quadrant test. I think so. Okay. Because I think he's bad in two of them, even even though not a torpedo to my deck. Mm -hmm. And at his best. One of the ones where he's good at is care. when you're winning. Yeah. Okay. So. How about our species gorger? We kind of mentioned him before about like it kind of depends on what's in your deck, but I think that it can be good in setup, but that real that's like what what do you have? Yeah, it's kind of like if you're playing him into a basically empty board state, you're like ah, oh, turn five, I play this dude, yeah, it does nothing. But generally, yeah, but most of the five, time during setup, you have some some things. Yeah, that's that's what I was saying. And so, like, if you have some things that had good ETBs, you can reuse. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. If you just have a two mana two two, it's probably fine. Like, sure. play this guy. You have a six six, and on your next upkeep, you're gonna have to re next turn. You're gonna have to replay your two two. That's fine. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, whenever you're winning, it's really good. It helps close the door. You know, yeah. 
at parity, it's probably good as well because it doesn't bounce things now, you know? Yeah. It bounces things on your next upkeep. Mm -hmm. So it's going to probably help and it help you keep control of the board and keep you from falling behind because it's, if you need it, if they do something where you need it, it's ready now. Right. And like I, I think the same thing is with the setup thing. If you have to bounce something, it's okay. You can just replay it. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Is like also it lets you choose what you're bouncing, assuming you have options. You know, like so it like, sucks if it's your only creature and you have to bounce itself and replay it when you're at parity. Yeah, but if you're not doing anything else, sure. I guess that's fine. And you know, general or and a lot of parity situations, like your board's cluttered up with things that don't really matter, and so you can like bounce if you have anything with an ETB effect. That's great. You know, and if yeah. you don't. You just bounce your cheapest thing, and you can probably replay it and whatever you draw next turn. And so you can just keep bouncing yeah. that. Yeah, I agree. I think when you're losing, it's also pretty good. Yeah. Um, because it's a 5-mana 6-6. Six, six. Like, it's it's going to be a problem for your opponent sure. to get around it. Sure. So, like, even if it just acts as a fog this turn, it doesn't go away. So, like, fog would be great if you could play fog every turn, right? Yeah. So, like, the Species Gorger, you play it and your enemy, your opponent just doesn't attack into it because it's a 6-6, six, six, and then it bounces itself on your next turn. Well, now you can decide, well, I drew something this turn. Should I play that instead? Or I do the Species Gorger again, and it just continues to buy me time. Yeah. So I think it's probably pretty good there. I think this card's probably pretty good. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's a standout amazing card. Sure. Because it is kind of contextual as to, like, the what... Like, how good is it? Right. You know? It doesn't excel unless you've built your deck in a... Yeah, in but I, th I think it's probably... I think it's probably a pretty good card. Sure. Okay. For limited. How about Putrefy? That card is great. Yeah. It's just... It's good whenever you're doing setup. Probably not amazing there, just because on turn three, if you kill their three drop with it, it's like, yeah, you one for one sure. at even mana but or whatever, and you there, don't want to like play it on their two drop. Out. Yeah, but that's fine. When you're winning... Like, if you're already winning, this stops your opponent from Recovering. stopping you. Yeah. For the most part, you know? Like, sure. it stops them from getting back in the game. Mm -hmm. Or it, it can also give you that window to actually finish them off whenever they didn't think that you could quite yet. Right. It can break parity because you can remove your opponent's best creature. Or if they're attacking into you, you can use it as a good combo tr combat, combat right. thing to, like, block different ways from what they expected. Right. If you attack into their stuff, if they double block your big creature, you can really blow them out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really great at parity. Sure. And when you're losing, like, depending on what it is that's making you lose, it could just be the best card in your deck. Right. Yeah. So this, I, this is, by far, in my opinion, the best card we've pulled so far. Sure. And then we've got the Notion Thief. Uh... It's a basically a four mana three one with flash, right? Yes. When you're playing limited, that other ability about drawing extra cards mm -hmm. is probably not super relevant. Probably not. Yeah. Um, I think that if you're playing limited, like if you're playing an actual tournament of limited and you're playing best of three matches, right? Mm -hmm. You could have games where you're like, okay, my opponent is playing five copies of Pilford Plans, like. I need to put this Notion Thief in my deck if it's not already in there. Sure. But in general, if we go through the Quadrant stuff, like on turn four, like a 3-1, it's kind of not 
great. Yeah. It's kind of bad, right? Yeah, it's kind of lame. Like, you can play it, and you can maybe trade with their 4-3 that they played on turn 4, sure. and it doesn't matter. Like, it's not necessarily the worst thing in setup, but very, like, that's another thing. I don't know if we talked about it when we were doing the quad. Few things are actually really bad in setup. I think few creatures are very bad in setup. Yeah, that's fair. You know what I mean? Right. I think the other stuff, it, it's probably still not that, it's like, most of the cards are probably fine during setup mm-hmm. on other cards, but I think when it comes to creatures, pretty much all of them are fine there. Sure, you know, right. And so, like this one, like it's kind of okay, but kind of yeah, bad. This one is kind of bad. It because... can't stop their like their one like their one drop isn't gonna be able to be stopped by this, so that's not right. good. Can't attack into their one drop either. Yeah, and it's just not good. Uh, but since it has flashed, I think that the the it gives it a little bit of points in the setup phase. Sure. Like, your opponent could attack with their their 5-3 or something. You can play this guy and trade, right? Yeah. That's probably fine. Yeah, sure. Um, the I think when you're winning, it's a 3-1. Good job. It's great. Yeah, it's fine. I Even there, it's <laughs> um, fine. It's still, the one toughness really hurts it a lot. Like, in a lot of areas. Yeah. So, like, even ahead, it's I still think it's not great when you're ahead. It can. It might close out the game for you. It might be... And, like, very few things are bad when you're ahead. So, like, I don't think it's really bad, but yeah, it's just with one not toughness, as good as a lot it's of things. really not impactful. <laughs> um, I think during parity, it's probably pretty bad. Yeah. You're going to attack it into their bear, or or worse, or, and it's going to yeah. die. It gets a, I think it, it gets a bump with the flash at parity. I, I think it is slightly better there. You can steal some draws if they if you're at parity and they try to pilfered plans or something. Mm. Or you, or so you can I just, it's... like, flash it in and it can trade up. I mean, trade up. It doesn't trade up for mana cost very much because it, their four mana creatures are probably going to survive it. But it can trade for creatures that are better than it is, that parity. Yeah. So, like, I think it's probably fine there. Mm-hmm. Uh, really bad when you're losing, though. Yeah. Really bad it's when you're losing. not likely to do anything. You might get to trade it up with an attacker, and that's fine. Right. But elsewise... Like, most of the time, it's not good. Thing. Yeah, I agree. Like It's not likely to get you out of it. It just, it might can. I think the Notion Thief is really more of a constructed card. Yeah, and that's like, a constructed it card. It kind of is crap and limited. Uh, if, if we were evaluating it for constructed, like we said before, this card evaluation doesn't apply as well or as strictly. And I think in constructed, it's way better at parity because you more often have people drawing extra cards mm-hmm. at parity and yeah. In limited, people draw them, but it's just like there aren't as many draw spells in limited. Right. So, yeah, I think that draw effect is more relevant at parity in constructed. Sure. So, like, and in constructed, it's way more important during setup because the ability on it and everything is a lot more valuable in constructed than it's like power and toughness. Because power and toughness yeah. are just more valuable in limited than they are in constructed. So. Yep. So I think you construct the cards better, but in limited, it's just not really good. Right. Uh, so does that mean it's it's one of those cards that if it's in my pool and my opponent is playing a bunch of pilfered plans, like I said, I'm I'm probably gonna side this guy in. Sure. But I'm gonna have to see a lot of those draw spells before I really want it in my deck. So our first pick out of this pack, uh, just just see if you agree, is putrefy with a, a runner up maybe being species gorger if it's maybe not our first pick. I don't. I, I think I'd hesitate to first pick the species gorgeous. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, if this is my first pick in the pack, if we're for some reason doing triple dragon's maze, and so I have this on a second or third pack, mm-hmm. 
I, I think I might be more likely to grab that Species Gorger. Sure. Um, I think if the Putrefy isn't there, um, I might be grabbing that Maze Behemoth. You think so? I think if the Putrefy isn't here at all... The Species Gorger, though, is close. So, let, let's say, are, is this still our first pick, or do I have something else that might... This is your first pick. Your first pick... But but no Putrefy. But no Putrefy. It, I mean, it's You're, a foil anyway. Instead so. of Putrefy, there's another clue stone in the pack. Okay. I think, man, that actually is pretty tough for me because I don't think that there's anything here that I'm, like, excited about outside of the Putrefy. Me neither. I just, I just think that the Maze Behemoth is, is the most just solid, generically good card, and I hate... And I think the Species Gorger I'd be committing to blue-green and really wanting to have some ETBs in my deck... And so I'd be scared to first pick that. I think that the... So I think I... Sorry. Go ahead. I, I mean, I've, I'm down to like three cards. I've like... Uh, the uh, the Pilfered Plans... Pilfered Plans is probably not a bad one. Pilfered Plans is one that I might take. Uh, Tithe Drinker, actually. It, like, if... Okay, if the I like that. the isn't here. 2-1 um, Lifelink. It's got Extort. Uh, I... But, I think, but, and then the crawl warrior is the other one that I might end up taking just because it's a bear, like, and it's got an ability. If I okay, like, I like that one. Um, I think that I was the maze behemoth was the one I was doing from memory. I'm not looking at the pack. Yeah, I think that putrefies the correct answer. Right, right, sure, but it's a foil. It but I think that that's here. just so generically the correct answer that it's just not interesting to talk about. Sure. So I think if we want to ignore that, I think. I think Pilferd Plans is probably the be next best option. Yeah, probably. Um, especially because in Limited Mill can be a good thing. And so, like, if I grab that Pilferd Plans, it could be contributing towards me winning if I happen into the Mill cards. Yeah. I don't want to take them, but it's a divination that does... It's a divination plus, you know? And pretty sure. much any divination plus is good. Yeah. Whatever the plus is. Yeah. So like I think that I, I'm I'm on the Pilfered Plains is probably best. I'd kind of forgotten it was there, and then the other like I kind of forgot about Crawl Warrior. So I think that that's not a bad option either mm -hmm. because it's I I don't like I said card. I super don't like picking first picking dual colored cards that aren't really stand out. Right. I like to pick monocolored stuff on my first pick. Sure. Yeah, that's and see where we end up. That's what puts the Crawl Warrior into the same realm as Pilfered Plans for me. I think the Pilfered Plans is a better card. It's just it's double color, right. so it's harder to cast. Yeah, I think if the Pilfered Plans was just a... Uh, like, it is blue and two. If it was just a divination... Or blue, blue, and one, right? Pilfered Plans? Yeah. Like, it was blue, blue, it's, and one to cast blue, that. blue, black, and one. I know, but I'm saying, if it was oh, blue, blue, and one... Yeah, sure. If it, I think I'd per first pick that. Yeah. Out, I mean, ignoring the Putrefied. Yeah, not over Putrefied, but... Yeah, I mean, if it was just divination, I'd probably take that. You know, not over putrefy again, but like, no, once again, yeah. Uh, but given that it isn't, it's blue and black, and I don't, I'm not sure, but I don't remember blue black being very strong in Dragon's Maze Limited. I think that there was a problem in Dragon's Maze with the mechanic in the set being cipher for blue black. Yeah. It really suffered from that. Yeah, so I think I would probably go with the Crawl Warrior if I couldn't take Put. Fair enough. Uh, let's see. Because we didn't get one of those 12 cards, though, let's open up another pack to see if we can add something cool to our to our giveaway stuff. Uh, okay, what are we opening? 
I think just because I have more of them right now and it's a bonus pack, we're going to go with the Strixhaven. Japanese Strixhaven pack again. Okay. Uh, but let's not, just because of a, how, how long we've spent on recording so far, let's not take spend a lot of time doing card evaluation. and. No, I think we're fine. If there's one that we think is interesting to evaluate, we may want to bring it up. Cool. I'm, I'm on board with that. But we have... Oh, crap. I don't know what this art card is. That art card is Time Warp. Oh, cool. It's nice looking. And Yeah, I really like that. I think that's one of the better arts in the whole set. I think that's a really good one. Yeah, it's a good artwork. Um, oh, man. Uh, we got a nice pack, Donovan. Well, I... Good. Glad the listeners are going to get something good. It it's a it's a nice pack to open up if you were playing limited. It's actually it's a set booster. a set booster. Wild. Yeah. Um, sorry, never mind. I don't know that it's exciting for our listeners. We'll see. We got a Japanese planes Woo! sliding this card to the back of the pack. We've got the okay. spectacle mage. Neato. We got a pigment storm. All right. Well, yeah, it's there. We've got a pop quiz. Oh, no. I hate pop quizzes. We've got a uh, thing. Teach by example. Teach by example. There we go. We've got a go blank. Oh. Um, because pack would be great and limited. Is this Flunk? Yeah. Flunk's a sweet card. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said like, this is a good pack in limited. Uh, I don't remember the name of this card. Test of Talent. Test of Talent. That's probably a good card for people who are getting cards for Constructed. It's just a good card to own. And then our foil was Pilgrim of the Ages. Neat. We got a, uh, a spirit token. Okay. Right. And then right. the, the, the fun stuff from this pack. That, well, I, I don't know. I always like the art. But <laughs> the more exciting cards. Whereas we've got a uh, Japanese Mystical Archive uh, Whirlwind Denial. Neato. We've got a well, well, but that is the 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 not the Japanese art, right? That was oh the, yeah, I think I don't the regular yeah, art, regular art for the Japanese mystical archive. Yes, or Japanese language regular mystical archive whirlwind denial. Yes, that. Um, I think this guy's name is Gnarled Professor. Okay, yeah, that is that yeah, card's name. Rare, uh, but and this this was this is basically the reason why I opened this pack up. I was like, oh man, this is a great pack for limited. <laughs> Yeah, a mascot exhibition. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we got anything in this, though, that's like a great prize for our giveaway, but it's a bonus pack, so... No, but it's a bonus pack. Test of Talent is a, probably a useful card to own for Constructed. Yep. Flunk might be a role player at some point in Standard. Yeah, and we, and um, we got a... Go Blank's a pretty good card. So, like, it's got some good uncommons. Yeah, and then and... there's a Mystical Archive in here, and there's a Rare and a Mythic point. Yeah, and it's a bonus pack. Yeah, it's a bonus. So we got we opened up a Dragon's Maze pack this week with a pu- foil putrefy in it. We opened a and a notion thief and a notion thief. We opened up a bonus more, pack. More valuable cards in that set. Don't want to leave that guy out. We opened up a bonus pack of Japanese Strixhaven that had a a notion thief is the eighth most valuable card in the set. God, that set was so worthless. Uh, but we're add add all those to our giveaway on top of. Barely the, being beaten out by Ral Zarek, which is kind of funny. The Planeswalker there in the set was barely more valuable than that Notion Thief. So we're, we're going to add these packs to this pack of Modern Horizons 2 that we opened up last week. And all those we're going to give away at the end of this month. Uh, Donovan, I think we could probably spend all night 
like doing card evaluation and talking about cool things, uh, magic stuff is always fun. <laughs> but I, w- I want to wrap it up <laughs> because I'm getting tired. It's getting late. But we will be back next week, uh, probably, like, unless something comes up, I don't want to make any guarantees, but probably next week we're going to be talking about all of the mechanics from uh, the Forgotten Realms expansion coming out in a couple of weeks, right? I, I don't know. There's a, there's, what kind of realms? I've never heard of these. Yeah, they're the ones that you forgot. Oh. In the meantime, Donovan, if uh, people want to hear more from you, about the most valuable cards in Dragon's Maze, where can they find you? You can find me at Boardwalk Games, where I probably have most of those cards for sale. Uh, I actually kind of low on uh, Master of Cruelties right now, but I think I've got all the other ones. <laughs> um, and you can find me on Twitter at Day underscore Donovan, or uh, streaming on Twitch Tuesdays nights right now at D-Day underscore 99. Yeah, I mean, it's your Twitch yeah. handle. Yeah, there's an underscore in there, because I, I remember... All of my things I talk about on here having underscores. Twitch.tv slash D-Day underscore, D-day underscore 99. 99. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. D-Day 99 was taken already. Lame. I try to use that for my username on everything. But And if you want to reach out to me to find out how many more packs of Japanese Strixhaven I've got left over, you can tweet at me at Engine Within on Twitter. You can email the show at planeswalkerspod at gmail.com. Betcha listeners who have been listening to us for a while can almost calculate that number i mean i i have opened some of them not on the show and i haven't ever said how many i had to yeah, begin with but not very guess. many that's true i also gave away i think some with how many you what i also just gave away some packs at boardwalk oh did you rough uh when i went to fnm i or listeners calculations i just gave people some never mind i'm just wrong <laughs> I mean, you could get pretty close if you just assume that I bought a, a box of set boosters to begin with. You, you you could be fairly accurate. Tell you what, take a guess. You email us a guess on how many set boosters Duncan has left. If you get it right, one more entry in the drawing. Yeah, sure. I'm on board. Uh, but you you can send me your guess at Engine Within on Twitter, or you can email us at planes. You can email that or anything else that you'd like us to talk about on the show to planeswalkerspod at gmail.com. And if you want to redeem your entry when you guess correctly for our giveaway or just, you know, enter our giveaway for free, you can go to patreon.com slash planeswalkers. And uh, if you're looking for a free entry into the giveaway, there's a link in the description of how the giveaway works in like the About Us section on Patreon that you can find. You can also join us on our Patreon to support the show and you'll get automatically entered into the monthly giveaways. Um, that's it for me. Until next time, Austin is on. Later days. This is Garth One-Eye, a champion of the arena and master of all magical disciplines. I've spent years as a virtual recluse turning away pilgrims who have sought me out to learn my secrets. I've been offered money, power, and magical artifacts, 
but I've kept my most powerful secrets to myself. Until now! If you want to be casting spells like Terra or Shivan Dragon, don't skip this ad. With a single, low, weekly recurring payment, we'll have you casting Disenchant and Regrowth in no time. Become a premium member and learn the ancient wisdom behind masterpieces like Brain Geyser. And if that's not enough, you can even join me on tour in Dominaria this fall. A few lucky fans who attend all 37 lectures will receive a limited edition collectible replica Black Lotus. Go to GarthOneEye.com and reserve your tickets now. Yes, like the ponies. The ponies don't come up every episode. I'll bring up My Little Pony as often as I can actually fit it in. I just, but I don't think like, well, every episode I'm going to find some way to have a My Little Pony reference, you know? What is, you look like you're holding back a laugh. What, what is it? It's just that. That's all I wanted. For me to be. I just like making faces that okay. interrupt me. Right. You like just interrupting me with your face. Uh-huh. Okay. Anyway. It shouldn't work when I know exactly what you're doing because you just said so. <laughs> but when you, you be silly enough, then it's really hard for me to just play through it, you know? Because I can't let go of it for even one episode. It's just a thing now. Well, who would want to let go of their Asmore? I can't remember. Oh, you mean Asmore and Amortikeist and Akultakar? The completely unpronounceable card name? Yeah, who would want to let go of that? Card is great. It's terrible in setup, but... <laughs> Apparently it's a good card, but like, I still think Asmorana Mordekadice and Akuldakar is an entirely unpronounceable name. Oh, shit. I'm only capable of recording 163 more hours of podcasts before I have this space on my computer. Fuck. <laughs> it's like two episodes for us. I know. You what? To destroy my sweater, hold this thread as I walk away. Watch it unravel, I'll soon be naked. I sung us off.